Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Election 2018 is in full swing, and now is the time to start figuring out how you're going to vote. For this edition of our politics-focused series, Policy in a Pint, we're taking a look at Proposition 1, about issuing $4 billion in general bonds for affordable housing-related programs and housing loans for veterans. Prop 1 is definitely focused on repairing California's housing crisis, but where does the money come from? How will it be spent, and who spends it? Is $4 billion enough to make a dent? And are issuing bonds that create more state debt the way to fix the housing problem? We're down in the basement at Roostaller Taproom in Sacramento to have a discussion with panelists who are giving us a straight talk on Proposition 1 and what it will mean if you vote yay or nay on it. So hi everyone, welcome to California Groundbreakers. We're a civic engagement organization. We focus on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state of California. And these are our policy and a pint discussions where we make politics and policy more relevant, more relatable over a pint of beer. And tonight we're holding one of our policy a pint, policy and a pint events on uh, election ballot issues. I should mention my name is Vanessa Richardson. <laughs> By the way, I'm executive director, and I'm gonna be the moderator here. We're gonna be talking about propositions one and two. This is the first hour uh, on proposition one, and it is the first one, obviously, on the ballot about uh, affordable housing. What we do is we, this is an interesting one because usually discussions like this are a panelist who talks about why they're for it, why they're against it. I think this one's a little different because we do have uh, uh, some people who may be, who are officially for Proposition 1, maybe they are for or against or neutral, but we're really gonna be taking a look at why this proposition's on the ballot, why it's a bond, um, how it's gonna help housing being built, who it officially helps. So it's kind of a, more of a discussion rather than a for or against. So. Before we get started with the panelists introducing themselves, I do want to thank a few people who are helping to make this event uh, possible. We're holding the event tonight at Roostaller's new tap room in uh, downtown Sacramento. And so I want to give a special thanks to Roostaller and the owner, J.E. Pano, who happens to be on California Groundbreakers board. So thank you very much, J.E., for letting us host. I think this is your very first event. So uh, very, it's going to be a fun one. And the beer is really good. Also, I want to thank uh, some people who helped make this event uh, possible. Noor Kassar from Housing California. Of course, our panelists are sitting here tonight. Uh, another board member, uh, Nicole Grant-Krieg, who's up there checking people in and giving them information. So I appreciate your, um, your help. And of course, last but not least, to you, the audience who are out here um, talking, or who are going to be listening and then talking at the mic. This is an event where I ask the questions first for about 20, 30 minutes, and then we will have audience questions uh, coming up uh, afterwards. So I also don't introduce the panelists. I let them introduce themselves because they know themselves very well. And I always like to ask a personal question of each of you, not too personal, but something that's kind of tied into the topic. And obviously this is about housing. So I figured besides your name, your current role and organization, I wanted to ask another personal note about housing, what your favorite house in California is. Is it the one you grew up in? The one you live in now? Would you like to live in Hearst Castle? Would you like to live in, I don't know, some Napa Tuscan villa? What, um, what is to you just like your ideal house that you would love to live in in California? Let me start with the woman on my left. Sure. So my name is Lane Himmelman. I'm the development director for Habitat for Humanity of Greater Sacramento. We are one of 42 locally supported Habitat for Humanity affiliates of California. And if I had to pick my favorite house, this one's a little bit, sorry, there's a feedback. It's a little bit hard for me uh, because working for Habitat for the past eight years, homes have a really special meaning because every single one that I've come in contact with has an incredible family and story and journey behind it. But of course, if I had to pick one, it would be my family home. Uh, my parents 
were able to build our home in Clarksburg and there's a lot of pride that comes with being able to build your own home and it's where I spent the first 20 years of my life and so just so many memories and being able to have that stable foundation for, for growth is something that I am forever grateful to them for. I'm jealous. I love Clarksburg. That's a great, that's a great place to grow up. All right, and how about the gentleman on my right? Uh, hi, yes, my name is uh, Rob Wasmer. Uh, I am a uh, professor at Sacramento State, just down the road from here. Uh, I uh, also uh, am the acting uh, uh, chairperson of the Public Policy and Administration Program, a master's program, and then director of master's program in urban land development. Uh, I'm going to have to be pretty selfish and say my favorite house is my current house, uh, largely because it's only about a mile and a half from Sacramento State, so I really value the proximity and, uh, you know, the new urbanist type of environment of having walkability, uh, good schools, good parks, um, and the appreciation. I've been there for about 20 years, and it's probably quadrupled in value. Um, so, it, you know, I really like it, but I think that ties into what we're talking about today in regard to affordability and um, whether that opportunity is open for other people moving to California like when I came here 20 years ago. And I'll just mention, before we go into questions, um, this is obviously we're doing it in a live uh, space with a live audience. And we do have, it's a cozy space, but we do have more chairs actually right here behind Nicole. So if anyone who wants to sit up, and don't be shy, because we're not going to bite, we do have more space here to set up chairs. And we have a couple here in the corner as well. So just uh, letting you know. All right. So one thing. Um, Researching this uh, uh, proposition one is it's a bond, and I so I'll just tell you I have a my dad is a fiscal conservative and he always told me never vote for a bond because you are spend you are issuing money that I won't be uh, paying for but you or your children will be paying for you know and it'll be add on to the debt. So <laughs> I always remember that about bonds. Don't, don't vote on bonds, according to my dad. So I think a lot of people, including myself, don't realize, I guess, the backstory of what a bond is. And I guess there's two different types. There's the uh, general obligation bond. There's a revenue bond. And that also comes, that specifies certain ways that bonds are issued and, and spent. So I thought, um, Rob, I could start a question with you about what is a bond in, in California in terms of how much, how does a general obligation bond work as this Proposition 1 is? And then also, I guess, what's the overall view of bonds in California? How much do we have in bonds? Is it a big deal in terms of our debt? How much should bonds, you know, go to housing? Is it uh, something that is fairly new with this proposition or we have we issued bonds and housing before um, so yeah how do bonds work in terms of our overall debt and 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 spending on housing sure sure yeah that's a multiple type question so i will uh, if i don't get to all the parts remind me if i miss I, something i but, will i just I want mean, to jump on you right away yeah yeah I think there's a lot of, um, in that folk wisdom of your father and that conventional wisdom, there's a lot of actually truth in it when you think about a bond. Because, you know, a, a bond, you're buying something for the people of California, right? And it's something that needs to last over a long period of time because we're asking the people of California to pay for it over a long period of time. So that's why bonds are usually used for, you know, capital projects, you know, things that are land and buildings and stuff that will last over time. And I think the easiest way for a layperson to understand it is to think about a home mortgage, right? You know, um, um, I, I would doubt your father saved for a long period of time and paid cash for a home, right? And it makes sense to him um, to pay for that home over time. Uh, and the bank needs to earn interest because they're, you know, paying interest to other people who put the money in the bank to loan to you, right? Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's important to only use bonds for long-term assets. That kind of gets into our issue of housing, right? Especially when you're buying housing, not for all of the people of California, but a certain group of people. And this gets into more, you know, equity type of concern, social justice, helping people live in California. We can come back to that about the appropriateness of bonds for, for individual housing. Um, now public housing, you know, uh, um, uh, 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 Orphanages or something like that, you know, would be different. Uh, medical um, um, children's hospitals has been used in the past. But and I think we have a bond on on building more children's hospitals yeah. on the ballot. And they've had them in the past, and they've been very popular. They always, whenever you put the word child, child in front of it, it usually uh, use goes forward. But the general obligation is another very important point. Uh, 
uh, that a general obligation bond has the backing of the full faith and credit of California, right? Those bonds are best are, are going to be paid off, right? The the state of California, uh, the the people hold the bond uh, could be forced the state of California to sell some of their state parks, right? And that land is very valuable, some of their coastal land that they own, right? So that's going to you know that that general obligation is going to be paid off, and hence um, they have a higher credit rating, they have a lower interest rate. Um, and they also require a vote of the people, right? 50% uh, simple majority in order for it to pass. Now, a revenue bond, you know, could be issued for like a stadium or a convention center, and the only collateral that's being used for that is the, uh, is the project itself, right? So if you issue a bond and, and you know, the, the project goes bad, uh, they, could, they could liquidate the project, right, liquidate the convention center. If the bonds are $250 million and the convention center only sells for $200 million, then the people are going to lose money. Right? So there's usually a higher interest rate, a greater risk on a revenue bond. Um, but you, know, you don't put the full faith and credit of the entire state of California behind it. This is a general obligation bond that we're, that we're talking about. Um, yeah, so bonds are used to finance these capital assets over multiple years. They've been used extensively in California. The, you know, about half of them, the majority of them, uh, plurality at least, has been for use for education facilities. More for K through 12, but higher education also. About 17% uh, water and disaster preparation, uh, um, water storage, water um, convenience, uh, conveyance. 25% uh, for transportation and air quality, 4% uh, for miscellaneous things, and only about 2% for housing. Right. Yeah, I read that. I, I read the Treasurer Office's Bonds 101, mm -hmm. and it said California currently has around $75 billion in outstanding long-term general obligation bonds, and of that $75 billion, currently only $1.7 billion is earmarked for housing. So $75 billion, is that a lot for California, the fifth largest economy in the world, to, to have? Is that pretty good in terms of uh, how we're doing with yeah, no, that, that's a great question. Uh, some people may remember, um, you know, back around the Great Recession, we had a treasurer named Bill Lockyer. Um, he called the problem in California the wall of debt. You know, we have this huge amount of debt, and we don't want to issue any more debt uh, and constraints. And the Governor Brown had to a, had a go up against that. And there's been a, you know, we've paid off a lot of that debt over time. And, uh, and we brought our debt down to a reasonable level, you know, um, considering the, the strength of our, of our of California's economy, we're kind of right in the middle of, the, of all the states. You know, we're not an outlier in that. It's 4% it's of the state's GDP, you know, 4% of every, all the incomes that are generated in the state. Um, it's 40% of annual state spending, the general fund spending, and it's about $2,300 per capita. Right, every man, woman, and child, you know, if you wanted to pay it off right now, would be responsible for about for about two thousand dollars of it. Um, so it's you know it, it you know this and um, uh, you know gives us gives us a pretty decent credit credit rating, but it's not our not not our top credit rating. And the one thing we have to be concerned about when you talk about is the unfunded pension liabilities, right? California has. You know these these pension liabilities in the in the 2000s they gave their state and local workers um, pay raises um, that weren't um, what they wanted and instead they gave them very generous pension benefits right and we haven't raised the taxes we haven't found a way to, so that that's what worries a lot of people on general obligation bonds and then we have infrastructure issues in California we have demographic issues that haven't been worked out entirely so some of that is what lowers our our, our credit rating you know and when you issue another bond you know um, it just you know doesn't do anything to in increase the, the credit rating. But this bond, this $4 billion bond in this larger $75 billion amount issued is, is, is a relatively small amount. It's a small one. Okay, okay. So yes, yeah, so I just wanted to get a sense of like what, what bonds are and, and so then yes, turning to the bonds and what this bond entails, Lane, I wanted to ask you about you know, what this bond would cover. So it is known as the Veterans and Affordable Housing Bond Act of 2018. Um, so obviously there's are the two top topics right there, veterans and affordable housing. And again, like Robin mentioned, $4 billion in general obligation bonds for housing-related programs, loans, grants, and projects. So I wanted you to give us just an overview of where the $4 billion would go um, overall for affordable housing, veterans, where, where is it uh, generally going to be earmarked for? 
Sure, absolutely. And something I should mention is that Habitat for Humanity California is an official endorser of this bond, which is something that's a little outside of our usual realm. If you're familiar with Habitat for Humanity, we um, we don't really dip our toes in advocacy work very often. But um, as an organization, we receive very, very little government funding, which is very unusual for a nonprofit. And this is a bond measure that's, that's very important to us, not only for our organization and what we do and the families that we serve, but also because because we really believe at Habitat for Humanity that everyone deserves a safe, decent place to call home. And so though we would only be receiving, if this bond measure passed, a very, very small portion of the pie, we believe that a rising tide lifts all boats and we want to be a part of the solution with the housing crisis in California right now. So did want to mention that um, this measure particularly, it's a $4 billion bond measure, as was mentioned. $1 billion of the bond measure would go to particularly support veterans and that would be funneled directly through CalVet. The other $3 billion of the $4 billion bond measure would support a variety of um, different funding and organizations. And of that, $300 million would replenish the CalHome program, which was previously in existence, which supported new um, home ownership opportunities and that Habitat for Humanity would directly benefit from. Okay, great. And then I did want to know about the, I guess, the backstory on this ballot, because I was reading how, obviously, this is something where uh, the legislature has been tackling housing for a while, but it seems like some of the, the bills that they were working on in the past, in the past uh, 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 session got... Um, didn't get passed or they got moved to let's have the voters uh, vote on them. So it seems like there was a few, maybe a few Senate or Assembly bills that were packaged together to create this proposition. And then obviously, it, I'm not sure if it voted along party lines, but um, 21 out of 25 Republican Assembly people voted against putting it on the ballot. So I just wanted to know if, if you, either of you could tell me the backstory of, you know, why are we voting on this when it seemed like there were so many bills that were coming through legis the legislature and uh, somehow for whatever reason some of it is is didn't get uh, didn't follow through so anyone can tell me the backstory on on this one lane i can i can take a shot at okay. it um i can tell Maybe you we, an overview we have been um following this bond measure even before it was a bond measure back when it was called sb3 and even before it had that name because when the governor did away with the redevelopment dollars in 2010 um, i think that's when we really saw that pain point for for housing when all of the state funding for affordable housing went away. And um, I think even as little as three years ago, if you looked at the state budget, it was something less than $100,000 that was being supplied for state housing. And um, housing funding is one of the few areas that, um, unlike education or local government funding, isn't protected by federal um, mandates. And so it's always the first to be on the chopping block. And you know, that was 2010. It takes a while for things to get to the point that we, they are now where we're seeing, you know, a homeless epidemic and families that are living eight people in one bedroom apartments or living in homes that have mold or plumbing that doesn't work because they just don't have any other options available to them or living two hours from where they work and taking the light rail. Um, so... Sorry, I lost my I lost my train of thought um, as I was going into this, but um, I think that it definitely has uh, morphed through through the years, and there's been pieces that have added to it because the the housing issue isn't just one issue. It's not just veterans or low income families or um, seniors who are needed housing. It's a it's a statewide epidemic, and so um, by offering funding to a variety of different ways, it seeks to address a variety of housing issues. Rob, yeah, I can add a bit to that. In in the uh, uh, the previous last year's uh, legislative session, there was a, few, a flurry of, of, of affordable housing legislation that went through. Um, we could talk about you know um, the streamlining and housing element laws and such, and uh, they were all relatively minor. They made people feel good. There was like 17 different things that were passed, and uh, and three of the things that were were proposed. One was this Proposition One in some form to put this four billion dollars on the ballot. Uh, one was a real estate uh, uh, transaction tax from like 75 to 225 dollars, um, and then the other was um, uh, a more thorough streamlining of the review process. To build affordable housing. 
right? And uh, the only one that actually survived, as you mentioned, um, was putting it on the ballot, right? The, 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 you know, the, the, the coalition of, uh, of Republicans and uh, some in the business communities and realtors um, came out against the streamlining. Um, and we, 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 I think we'll get to streamlining and talking about it as, as a solution for the future, but uh, it's, it's a difficult coalition to, to work against. Um, and uh, that's what's left right now is just this, this $4 billion um, as compared to what the other two might have actually probably been more effective in doing something about it, but the politics of it prevented it. So I think you had mentioned, Lane, the, um, uh, I, I'm spacing, there was the uh, redevelopment agencies that uh, got done away with. I, I guess this affected how affordable housing was done, and that also kind of plays into part in why this ballot is on, on the ballot, right? Okay. Um, so, yes, we've done a few... Uh, Previous panel discussions on on housing, you know why why the rents are so damn high and why housing costs so much to build and and developers of you know given their issues obviously um, there's um, uh, what they call red tape and regulations also CEQA California Environmental Quality Act so you have to uh, meet certain environmental uh, standards so there's a lot of things that are involved in building housing and affordable housing making it affordable I guess is also even a bigger issue. So for this one, I think I was, um, I've re read some op-eds about, you know, you try to build affordable housing, but when you're building them in uh, areas like, you know, the Bay Area, San, uh, Sacramento, LA, where a lot of people are and needs affordable housing, it's expensive to begin with the land and so forth. Um, so I was wondering, you know, how, even with this bond going forward and it passes, would that help in any way with the actual process of building affordable housing in terms of lowering costs or you know, maybe it helps get through some permitting processes or is it just the money is there but you still have to go through the standard process already put in place to build? Let, let's start with you, Lane. I mean, I can, I can only speak to us at Habitat for Humanity, and we go through the same exact process as any for-profit builder as far as the permits and the regulations. We pay all of the so same. You do the same way of building as, as a for-profit one? Uh, not the same way of building because we build with 90% volunteers, um, so that's a little bit unique to Habitat. But as far as... Um, you know, going through all of the, the process and the permits and, you know, all of our homes are built to the highest level of lead building standards. So they're, you know, extremely sustainable and uh, up to code. Um, what this bond measure would do is it would enable us to double the amount of homes that we build per year for low income families because of the financial resources behind it. And Rob, do you have anything to say about the the process of Yeah, building. I mean, we have a deficit of about 1.5 million. That, that's a conservative estimate of the number of housing units that need to be built, you know, if, to work on the supply side to bring us down to a, um, you know, a, a reasonable price for both a home and, and for rent, you know, that people aren't spending more than 30% of their income on it. Um, you know, the legislative anal analyst office looked at Prop 1 and said this would help about 55,000 homes. Um, so I think, you know, does this make a dent in it? Um, I think it makes um, more like you know, when you come out of, uh, into the parking lot and you see that little small dent on the side of your car, you know, and it, it, you, it bothers you for a little while, it makes a little bit of difference, but in the end you forget about it. You know, this, this is just such a small little amount um, that, yeah, sure, it helps and all the, all the people that would be getting a home under Habitat makes a difference, but it really is not a solution for the problem, right? And most people who've looked at this, you know, need to look more at the uh, supply side. You know, we need to build more. And, and one more point, and then I'll give it back to you, is that, you know, part of this is, is just subsidizing people's to pay the existing rent, right? And developers like this, you know, they don't want more built because that brings down the return on their existing properties. Or if you're a landlord, you know, the, the, the rents come down. So they would like to, to tax people in California, get them to pay taxes, and then we would subsidize veterans' home buying. We would subsidize low-income people's high home buying. But the real issue is we just need to build more homes, right? And the market will take care of the solution, and prices will come down. Lane, did you want to uh, comment on that? I did, and I don't mean to call you out, Rob, but earlier at this um, at this session, you mentioned that your favorite home is your own and that it's tripled in value. And so I think it's easy to say that, oh, it won't make a dent when you are lucky enough to be a homeowner and to have a sustainable mortgage and a safe, stable place to live. But for families like... Um, 
you know, we, we had a family named the Dixon family who moved in in March of 2016. She's a single mom. She works Monday through Friday as a receptionist and her husband was killed and she was living in government housing, supporting her kids. And there were drug deals and shootings in the complex and it's all she could afford. And then she ended up moving her family into a 200 square foot garage because on her income, that's all she could get by without them living in that government housing. And for her, she went through our program. She put in 500 hours building her Habitat home and then purchased it from us for a 30-year, 0% interest mortgage. And that home has now provided financial stability to where she plans to send her three children to college. And they're able to have that, um, that springboard to a better quality of life. And so if you look at the numbers, you can say, is this making a difference? But when you are able to provide that sense of financial security and that safe, stable, decent place to live, that stops the generation, the cycle of generational poverty for a family and has impact beyond what happens just the next day. So it's sort of like that tale of the starfish when you see the little boy and he's throwing the starfish into the ocean and someone says, oh, you're never going to get all the starfish. Well, yeah, but I saved that one and I saved that one. And so is it better just to remain stagnant and do nothing or is it better to help those that we can and do everything we can to help these families so that they're not struggling and living in deplorable conditions that those of us that are lucky enough to have a home could never even imagine? And Rob, I, I agree with you 100%. And, and I think we need to do this and we need to do much more. What I worry about is people vote for this and they say, great, we're done. I put my $4 billion out there and the problem is solved. And, you know, some of this is going to veterans. There are existing programs for veterans. You know, very small amount of, of, of what, what you said, uh, uh, less than a billion of this goes, you know, to the specific examples that you're talking about. Yeah, and I, and I want to help. Uh, those type of people and I want to help them even more and the reality is we can only do this by working on the supply side This is a beginning and this is a short-term rent control is also a possibility of a short-term that we talked about in the past But we really need to talk at the the major problem of talking about building more And then we then it conflicts with some of other goals that California has we mentioned CEQA we invent mentioned environmental impact um, um, we mentioned uh, people's concerns with Proposition 13 and fiscal zoning that communities don't want to have affordable housing because it doesn't have high enough value that 2% of it doesn't pay for the cost of providing services to it. So it really is a, a Gordian knot of a complicated problem that, that, that is very interrelated. But if we really want to make a dent on this, we just need to build more and we need to build more affordable housing and we need to get over NIMBYisms. Uh, people, people like in my neighborhood where there were projects and my neighbors who had Hillary Clinton signs on their lawn then came out later on against affordable housing in the neighborhood. So that disconnect between you know, what you may value, you know, I'm all for affordable housing, I want to help people, but just don't put it in my backyard. Um, because it crowds my streets, um, uh, lower socioeconomic kids going to my, to my schools, makes me worry about um, the kids aren't going to get that good of an education, crime possibility, all that type of stuff. There's more people living per capita in affordable housing, which crowds. I mean, so those are the issues that we have to get over and try to get, get over that nimbyism and get politicians behind it. And th this is a start, um, but I just worry that people think, as in the small little, in the 2017 legislative session, where there's a bunch of small little things that were done, and th then there wasn't much done in this legislative session that um, um, we really haven't hit to put the big dent in the, in the issue that we need to. I would like to open up the, the mic to questions. And again, like I mentioned, there is a, a standing mic right there behind the pillar. I, I know there's some really good questions out there. And the first one who goes up to the mic, uh, the beer is on us. So I hope that will incentivize. Uh, so while you decide what your first question is going to be, um, I did want to ask about you know, you had talked about Prop 13 and obviously um, how housing is done also affects revenue that's generated by cities and counties. So I was wondering if, if you have looked at uh, if this bond is passed and the housing that is built, will that have any effect or impact on revenue received by uh, cities or counties or, you know, what they don't receive. This, again, came from uh, a comment from, you know, an op-ed. There's uh, the Howard Jarvis Taxpayer Coalition that, that typically is against bonds. Uh, the, the Reason Foundation, I think they, you know, question prop one. 
one of the things they mentioned is, you know, how will this affect revenue for cities and counties if some of the the affordable housing is built by or owned by nonprofits, it's taken off the tax rules. So I was just curious to see whether there's any, you know, lane, uh, any impact on cities and counties. Can only speak for our organization, but um, we build on foreclosed um, tax lien properties. And so these, we build in South Sac, Oak Park, Del Paso Heights. These are properties that some have been vacant for literally decades. They are collecting back taxes. There's trash strewn in them, all sorts of sorted happenings. And so we purchase these cities, fr these these properties from the county. Then we build a habitat home where we, uh, a working family purchases that home and then they generate property taxes. And so our local Sacramento habitat every year pays about, our homes generate about $200,000 a year in property taxes. We've been around for 33 years. That's $6.6 .6 million in property taxes multiplied by 42 habitats across the state. So um, as far as taking revenue away from um, the state and local governments, I, I have to vehemently disagree because we are actually generating income where there would not be regardless if we weren't here. Rob. Yeah, no, no, that model is great. Exactly. You do take a, a home that is, is um, you know, being underutilized and, and decrepit and, and improving it. And then it, it's, you know, it's in it, an improvement, the assessed value goes up and then the revenue goes in. But but at the same time, that home may have been vacant or may have been underutilized. There are people then that come into that home and then they need the services of the, of the, of the local schools or the parks and such. But so the problem in California is we only get 2% of the value of the home. Right, so if you if, if it's a hundred thousand dollar home, the the community only gets two, you know the property taxes are only two thousand dollars for for any type of home for any type of home it's two percent so a half million dollar home you know it's ten thousand dollars and the the truth is in affordable housing that hundred thousand dollar home probably has two or three kids living in it the half million dollar home has a a half to one and a half kids living in it right so there's more strain on the services so after Prop 13 communities have actually done fiscal zoning. They very explicitly said to bring in affordable housing, you know, to bring in small housing with a lot of people living, it's not going to pay for itself, right? It's going to put a bigger strain on us. So that's part of what, we're, what we face in regard to nimbyism and non-zoning for affordable housing. Now, we have a housing element law in California that says every community has to take on its fair share of affordable housing, but that's, that's part of the problem. It's not being enforced. Right. It, it is a state law. The governor, the attorney general, revenue sh taking away revenue sharing. It could be done in many ways. Part of the flurry of legislation in 2017 was to tighten up the housing element law. Um, but, you know, on their own, the idea of local control, nimbyism of neighbors not wanting affordable housing uh, and the issues that come with it. That's what stopped us from building this affordable housing. And you see it over and over again. And people will very explicitly say that I'm all for affordable housing. We need to build more for my kids until it comes in their neighborhood. Right. And they look at the strains on their on their schools or the rise in crime, all that. And then they will put up the resistance and the local politician will respond to that. Right. Um, so that, you know, that's what I think we really need, need to work toward. And, and programs like Habitat for Humanity, where you can actually go in and fix up homes, but you know what, you know what happens with your gentrification? People will say, when you're going to a neighborhood and fix up the homes too much, you know, then and a new middle-class group of people move in, you know, to a, to a formerly, uh, you're doing it on such a small scale, but when a whole neighborhood transforms, you get that also part of, of nimbyism, you know, not wanting to transform the neighbor over to a, to a higher socioeconomic level. Lane. So, well, we actually work to um, fight, fight gentrification. Some of the work we're doing in Oak Park right now, especially South Oak Park with our, our Rock the Block event this October, is really trying to help seniors and veterans to stay in their homes. Um, there's been a huge uptick in senior homelessness in Oak Park because of the gentrification that's been happening. And I just want to specify for those who don't know, Oak Park is a neighborhood in, in Sacramento that is, is on the rise. So there's a lot of younger couples who are moving in purchasing homes and they see the house across the street and it's falling apart and it's you know a senior who's maybe lived there for 20 or 30 years and so code enforcements in the, over the last several years have gone through the roof and with that senior homelessness has also seen an increase and so what we do at habitat is really work to uh, fight the homeless epidemic by keeping people in their homes by providing those critical repairs um, so that they they don't get displaced so i, I think you might not be super familiar with how our, our repairs program works because we are working in those areas to, to fight gentrification. 
No, I mean, I was just talking in general. You know, when, when young people move into a neighborhood, you know, that, that is um, below, you know, the median home price in Sa Sacramento is like $380,000. But you can go to some neighborhoods in Sacramento and you probably buy some of these homes, you know, for $150,000, $125,000. And, uh, you know, to get a bunch of people flooding into those, you know, not through Habitat for Humanity, but a bunch of young people coming in, fixing up those homes. Um, you know, there, there is a, a neighborhood outcry for some of that, changing the character neighbor, neighbor of the home, less people of color there. Um, and uh, you know that that is a concern at the same time. So it, it's a fine balance. You know there there are benefits of that happening, but then you do change the the character of the neighborhood. And, and this is happening somewhat in Oak Park that people are complaining about it. So I'm not specifically talking about your your model, um, but you know your model is very small scale, right? It's it's not going to uh, uh, cause a major change in this housing affordability. You know, it, it affects people, you know, and, and I've worked for Habitat for Humanity. I, I fixed up homes uh, uh, a few years ago in, in South Natomas, all right? So I, I know the value of it, but it, it's, it, it's not, you know, we need to have much more in regard to uh, uh, doing this to, to really make a difference. So let's take some questions from the mic. And uh, Stephen, the bartender, just tell him your first drinks on the house. <laughs> I already have my first drink, so second. Second, maybe, Steve. Um, so, I really think people in Sacramento are very compassionate um, and they are willing to have, in most neighborhoods, are willing to have um, affordable housing in their neighborhood. And my understanding is that for the last couple of years, there's been a problem developing affordable housing because there just aren't the funds. And it really sounds like this will make funds available all over the state, including in Sacramento. So to me, it's a no-brainer. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, it sounds like it's not limited to any specific class of um, low-income people. There's just, you're saying for homeless, disabled, low-wage workers, vets, are there any specific low-income people that would be excluded from this bill or um, is it and then the other question is um, would the housing be permanently affordable housing or long-term affordability because I hear what you're saying that um, you know housing can be low maybe built as affordable housing but then the someone could sell it later you know like five years later but maybe you could talk about that too and, and I'd like to add on to that. I was wondering about uh, geographic. Are there certain areas that are you would be encouraged to build in, you know, that, that need that the boost or need affordable housing, more um, urban versus rural? Just wonder if there's any ge geographic uh, specifications. So, Lane, why don't we start with you? Sure. Um, so kind of in response to the first part of your question, I... I do think that something that's important to note, and, and Rob touched on this earlier, and I, and I agree with him, there, we're in a, it's not a housing issue right now in the state of California. It's called a housing crisis for a reason, and there's no silver bullet or white horse that's going to come and save the day um, and help everyone. I think this bond measure is a really amazing step in the right direction. I really hope it passes, but I think as with anything, when you're trying to address a crisis, um, you have to keep going and keep pushing and keep trying to um, to do more to really serve the wide spectrum of housing needs. And I think one thing that this bond measure does touch on is they, if you look um, if you look at it, it's literally pages and pages of how the money is divided and what goes where. They've really tried to at least look at addressing the wide spectrum of housing. And so it's everything from transitional housing and homeless housing, which you know isn't necessarily something that that we do. But just as a citizen of Sacramento who lives in Midtown, um, you know, there, there's such a dire need for that, as well as creating home ownership opportunities through organizations like Habitat, affordable rental, um, farm worker housing through the Joe Cerna program. Um, so it really is trying to provide a little bit of seed money to a variety of different needs for housing across the state of California. And like I said, it's it's not a silver bullet. It's not a white horse. It's not going to, I mean, we it's taken us almost 10 years to get to where we are, to where people are so outraged because they're seeing not only just people flooding the streets, living, um, you know, on sleeping bags and in tents on the river, but it's starting to not just um, 
not just to where you, you you see homeless people, but it's your neighbors. It's affecting your your mom. It's affecting your dad. It's affecting people that you know. It's affecting you. I mean, I think of myself as a young professional, and you know, I'm lucky enough that I have a college degree and I'm educated. And I think to myself, if I don't get married, I'll probably never be able to own a home. And I've grown up in Sacramento my entire life, and. I'm blessed to have all of the things that someone should have, a good job, an education that should enable them to have that. And so it really makes me um, feel very strongly about those who don't, didn't have the opportunities that I've had and would never even be able to dream of owning a home. And that's why I feel like bond measures like this are so important. Rob. Uh, I would just refer you to the legislative analyst's office. About three years ago, they did an analysis. If we would go down this path of raising taxes, issuing bonds, trying to subsidize people, it would cost two and a half times what we annually spend for the entire state government. The conclusion being it's not possible. We can't solve our affordability problem by issuing bonds and subsidizing rents you know, and, and, and such as this. And half of this bond, half of the four billion, is going to help out people to buy a home or to have a down payment. And half of that half is going to veterans, right? So I mean, that, this isn't my analysis, it's only 55,000. Know, there's probably that many in the city of Sacramento that needs this money, right? It's 55,000 is what $4 billion buys. So, I mean, just keep that in perspective, that, we, that, that this is a start, it's going to help some people. There will be some anecdotes about how it's really made a difference in some people's lives, but it's not going to make a difference in our housing crisis. Um, and, and we can't use this method to solve it. We need to build more, right? All right, next question at the mic. Uh, so, Professor Wasmer, you've talked a, a bit about uh, supply tonight um, and about uh, how we need a drastic amount of supply and, and I don't necessarily dispute that but I am curious as to and I'm going to open this up to both of you I'm curious as to how much uh, the practice of artificial inflation on housing prices by lenders affects that and just to contextualize that that's when lenders just buy up houses that are vacant in order to raise the prices of the housing market overall so I'm curious how that affects the the uh, supposed housing deficit overall Rob you want to start uh, sure, we live in a capitalist system, and people who have money, a lot of realtors who are against some of these, some of these propositions, amazing how many I talk to them own seven or eight homes and, and, and rent these homes. So they buy up those homes, and um, yes, um, you know, they, they have the ability then to set the rent for them. Um, now, many of the same people did this in 2006, and they lost their shirts, right? So that's the risk that you take as a real estate investor, right? As I say, I've been teaching public policy for 20 years in Sacramento, and from you know, 2002 to 2006, we had a housing crisis, right? From 2007 to 2013, we didn't have a housing crisis. My students didn't even want to talk about it, right? The, the, the median home price dropped by almost a half over that period, right? So I mean, it, it's a short-term thing that's driven by demand and a constraint of our supply, right? Another recession would probably take care of this. That's why I'm, I'm concerned about rent control, putting things that, that, are, that are impermanent. Um, so uh, yeah, it, it's there. I don't know how you stop it besides um, you know, really throttling the capitalist system and telling people that they can't earn more, own more than a certain number of homes or stopping mass investment, which I don't think that we want to, to really go into. You're moving into something more of a socialist type of perspective uh, in regard to homes. Uh, what is the private market's role in Prop 1, like, uh, you know, for-profit developers um, or ones that would be uh, issuing loans? Are, uh, do they play a role in this, or is the uh, money from the Proposition 1 would go to state agencies, nonprofits like Habitat for Humanity? Have we, have we taken a look at, uh, you know, um, I guess, for-profit's role in this? Because they, obviously they, they build a lot of housing, but will they be involved some? somewhat or very much in, in Proposition 1 funding. Lane? Uh, sure. I mean, I think if you look at the endorsers list of Prop 1, there the building industry is a endorser and supporter, as are many developers. And I think that some of that probably has to do with the, the pain they've been feeling about the idea of rent control and how that would affect builders. Um, and so they support building more homes rather than rent control. I Habitat hasn't taken a uh, official stance on the rent control, but I can say that our, our opinion is very much that 
the housing crisis, like Rob said, is because there's a lack of supply. And we believe that uh, home ownership is a sustainable solution versus um, when someone is renting, they are not building their own personal equity there and they're not able to tap into that for a springboard to future endeavors. So we, we really support building more homes and we're on the side with the developers and the builders and the families. And Rob, did you, I just wanted to see if you had any comment on that. Private markets role, should there be one more of them involved or less? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, in what I actually looked at this, you know, the, 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 the state bail proposition and the analysis of it, and the only uh, groups that are against Prop 1 is the Republican Party in general in California and the candidate for governor, the Republican candidate for governor, the only two that I saw that have come out formally against it. So it, it's a political bill that's been crafted in a way that, yeah, brings the developers on board because, as I said, when you subsidize rents, they, they, you know, they're asking California taxpayers, they get the same amount of money, right? You help the poor person, you help the vet to pay their rent, right? So they're on, they're on board with that. Um, and then the, you know, the Democratic Party with, you know, more progressive in regard to wanting helping poor people are, are, are on board with it. So apartment associations on board would help it. So, yeah, I mean, I would be very surprised if it doesn't pass, right? Um, just from the history Don't of what's happened it. in the past. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, I have a question, obviously. We, so we did a, on Monday, two days ago, a, a, an hour on, on rent control. So that was really interesting. We also, like I mentioned uh, before to the audience, we did one on Prop 5, which is about uh, extending uh, property tax, um, um, uh, property taxes for homeowners over age 55 and... Um, the disabled, giving them more of a benefit. So obviously these are two topics. And what was very common was, like what you two were saying, there needs to be more done. Uh, sometimes it's just a drop in the bucket or it's a short-term um, solution. So I have a question for you about, this is obviously one part of, Proposition 1 addresses a few things when it comes to the housing crisis. It's not going to solve everything. It'll cover a few things. I wanted to ask you, I guess, the wish list question uh, if, if you, to address more uh, and to do maybe a, a better job in some ways that Proposition 1, as it is, is can't do right now, what would California's next governor and the next le legislative session that starts in January, what should they do to address this in the next session? Whether or not Prop 1 passes or not, what do you think that they should be doing? What should they get passed? Rob can go first. Um, well, it's already been tried, right? I mean, um, let me just, I mentioned this before. California is very progressive in this area. It's called the housing element law, right? When a, when a, whenever a city or a county uh, puts together its general plan, um, 5, 10, 20 years, it has to have land zoned for its fair share of affordable housing in that area, right? So there is land that's been set aside for affordable housing, um, and, um, you know, a developer will come along and they'll want to put affordable housing in place, and then the, uh, the NIMBYism will come forward, and people will come out and say, and they can, they can use the CEQA process for the Environmental Quality Act, and environmental impact reports. The NIMBYs can call for those. The developer has to come up with an alternative. It may take two or three years to fight this in court. Um, uh, some developers don't even bother trying to put it in place. Um, and if, even if they do, they have to raise the price of their housing uh, for, the, for, the, uh, for the, the time that it takes to develop that. So I talked to developers in downtown Sacramento. They need to earn a 12% return right, to build affordable housing. With the cost of land, as you mentioned, it's, it's just not possible. And it is all this, this stalling and this streamlining that needs to be done. You may have heard Governor Brown two years ago tried to put as of right in place, right? If you're an affordable housing developer, you come to a community, the land is set aside, you meet all the zoning regulations, you meet all the building codes, you get to build it. We, we slow down, we stop the CEQA process. We stop the environmental impact reports. Well, who's against that? The environmentalists. Right? They see that this is a part of California, CEQA and preserving our environment. This is just the beginning. This is the camel's nose under the tent to get rid of CEQA. Right? So no, I don't want to get rid of CEQA, but I want to streamline that process. And you actually have many affordable housing projects going through CEQA that doesn't even really need to. 
right? So what I would say if we wanted to do something is along those lines. Remember a very famous bill, right, that was tried to put to the, it didn't even make it out of the committee, actually. The Senate committee was, you know, being able to build a five-story building, right, near a high-density transit stop. Basically a Bay Area bill, right, to be able to build these buildings. Didn't even make it out of the committee, right? You have the Sierra Club was against it. Right? You have local governments who are against it because they don't want to use, lose their local control right? to be able to stop, to be able to fit. You have historical preservation that's against it. Right? So this is the nimbyism. Right? Who would have thought a Berkeleyite would be against building high-density affordable housing that was right next to transit? Well, they are. Right? And they come out against it, and that's why this type stops. So you know, I think it really needs to go to a proposition. I'm working with Mayor Steinberg right now on a compromise in regard to rent control, where we only put rent control maybe in Sacramento for two years, and he's already taken a public position that he's going to be a cheerleader for affordable housing development, right? He's going to talk down these NIMBYs, he's going to get his zoning department, he's going to go with, go with builders, and we're going to build, build, build in Sacramento. Um, and that, that's kind of an alternative, you know, so it might not even come out of the legislature. Because all these assembly people are captured by local governments, right? They all represent local governments, they all represent NIMBYs. It may have to be these progressive mayors, um, some of it's happening in the Bay Area in San Francisco with the new mayor, uh, Steinberg, um, to be to, to taking care of some of this. You know, sticking their, sticking their nose out and forming a coalition with like the service sector unions who, who supported this um, and, um, and with the developers who, you know, who they have been complaining about not being able to develop, to be able to do it. So, so that's kind of my dream and we're kind of incrementally going towards it. Um, but this last legislative session was a, was a disappointment, right? There really wasn't anything that came out of it. Some of this streamlining that was put forward was knocked down, as you mentioned before, right? It was part, supposed to be part of this Proposition 1. So, yes, I think this is a question I often ask, especially when it comes to uh, housing, is, you know, whether or not you pass prop... Well, actually, no, this is going to be a two-part question. Um, I want to say that one for the, for the last one, uh, because there's another question at the mic. Rachel, I think you have one. Well, I, I'm afraid that people are getting the wrong idea because I believe Mayor Steinberg um, supports Prop 1 and Prop 2. So I just want to make sure, because you're making it sound like he doesn't support Prop 1 and is doing all these other things. My understanding is Mayor Steinberg is um, intentionally trying to solve the homeless and housing problem in uh, Sacramento by supporting m many things, both taking away barriers to development, supporting state funds for affordable housing and homelessness, um, uh, as well as asking people to uh, support Prop U, uh, uh, Measure U, which will add um, uh, a half cent sales tax to support things like affordable housing. So I, I just don't want people to get the wrong idea Steinberg, uh, Mayor Steinberg is very supportive of both state and local funds for affordable housing. I just, I just need to clarify, I, I never said that I, um, Mayor Steinberg was against Proposition 1, and I've never said that I'm against Proposition 1. I'll, I'll come right, I'm going to vote for it, right? I'm just saying that he recognizes uh, that it's a beginning, um, and, uh, you know, we should probably do it for, for short-term solutions, uh, but, I mean, it's not going to solve the problem, right? Um, and I, I refer to the LAO who did an extensive study on this. If you want to go down this route of, of issuing bonds, taxing people to, to solve housing affordability, it would take two and a half times what the state government currently spends just to do that, right? It just can't happen. It's just not possible to get everybody so they're only paying 30% of their household income, you know, towards housing. So we need to look to other ways. And it, it's building, but then that goes against our environmental uh, history. It goes against our pursuit of greenhouse gases because where do you build? I think this was a question you had before. Do you build out in the suburbs where the land is cheap, right? Or, you know, or, and where a lot of people want to live, right? Or if you build downtown, it's much more expensive, right? And we want to build downtown so we can get our greenhouse gases and our AB32 and all these goals in, in place. So it, it's, it's, it's not, not an easy solution. So I'm very clear. No, I do not. I, I know Mayor Steinberg is for Proposition 1. I'm for Proposition 1. My point is that it's just not going to be the solution overall to the problem. It's a start and uh, what we need is the supply side to do more. And, and he fully realizes that. He was against rent control. He came out against the initial citizen gathering. But now he's decided to compromise on a short-term rent control uh, to bring that group of people together because that's what he is. He coalesces people and brings them together and then try to get the developers on board to support this and honestly the rest of the council members to support it in order to, uh, to get something through. 
So it sounds sounds like yes, yeah, Sequa streamlining Sequa and having more Yimbies uh, speak up would be two good ways to get get some change done. And uh, Lane, I was wondering, you know, wish list or things that you think would really help get besides Proposition One passed uh, more change. Yeah, I just think with everything, it's about finding solutions that are sustainable um, and really looking at housing as a spectrum. I think very often, especially here locally, if you look where local funds are spent, we so often just focus on one spectrum of the housing crisis and funnel all of our energy and funds that way. But in order for people to become self-reliant and stable, they have to be moved up the spectrum. And I think about, um, we have this one family that their, their story, I think, really shows that they were formerly homeless they um, had some substance abuse issues and they met an na they had six hundred dollars a month between them and they lived in quinn cottages and which is a transitional housing and um, from there started their life and eventually moved out into um, you know a little bit of an overpriced rental situation applied for our program built their habitat for humanity house Fa- uh, purchased it for an affordable mortgage. And then when they were in that home, they were able to go to school. And he ended up getting his bachelor's degree from Sac State. And he's now um, a medic clinic at CoreMedic, a uh, counselor for helping other people with addictions. And she went to Le Cordon Bleu and got her culinary degree. And now she's the head pastry chef at Nugget. And they actually outgrew their habitat home because they had another child. But because of their affordable mortgage, allowing them to pursue their educational dreams, get better jobs, make a better income. They were able to take out a loan, sell their habitat home on the market, pay us back, which enabled us to build a home for another family. And they bought the home of their dreams on the traditional market. All three of their kids will go to college. And so it's really investing in all areas of the spectrum because someone that's living on the streets, they're not in a place where they're going to be able to purchase a home, but it's moving them up step by step to where they are no longer reliant on assistance and they're able to put back what was given to them and pay it forward. And I really think that it's only investing in those solutions and varying the income streams to all the different areas of the housing spectrum that we're really going to get ourselves out of this crisis. So we have two minutes left before uh, we got to wrap it up, but I... I guess the question is, what happens if Prop 1 passes? What happens if it doesn't pass? You know, the the pros and cons of it um, moving forward. Will there be more done? Or maybe Rob saying people might think, oh, we did our thing. If it doesn't pass, maybe the legislature has more pressure to do something. I'm just wondering, you know, last word, what happens if it passes? What if it doesn't pass? I'm going to start with Lane. Well, if it passes, there's 55,000 plus households that will um, be immediately helped. So I think that that is, um, you know, a very, very tangible example of what will happen if it passes. And I think it's really starting the conversation um, about the need for affordable housing. And hopefully people don't see it as a silver bullet. They don't think that, oh, great, I just voted. It passed. Problem solved. Um, But I really don't think that'll happen because at the end of the day, we all live and work and meet people that are going to be in a housing crunch. And so I hope that the, the conversation continues and we continue to fight. And Rob, last word from you. Uh, yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, I, I think it will pass. I'd be very surprised if it didn't. I'm, I'm of a mixed mind, though, of thinking about what's going to happen if it does pass. Because as I've, as I've said, I don't think that this is a model to follow to, uh, you know, to issue more bonds in the future, right? To go and issue more and more bonds. That, that, that is not the way, um, you know, uh, to get this done. So I worry about that. Um, and then I also worry, as I mentioned, if it does pass, that we think we don't have to do other things, right? We don't have to worry about um, uh, increasing the supply or uh, uh, streamlining CEQA, you know, uh, enforcing our housing element uh, issues. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's good that it's, it's an awareness campaign. It, it truly is not all that amount of money. You know, it's not going to cost. But, you know, we have to remember bonds, as brought up from the very beginning that you mentioned, are paid for by somebody, right? And, Cal- and they're paid for by California taxes in general, right? And California taxes, even though there's a lot of taxes that hit high-income people, the millionaire tax that you'll be talking about soon, right? There, you know, we rely extensively on the sales tax and we rely extensively on fees. So when you are, when you are taxing California citizens to help them buy homes, you are actually taxing some lower-income people too, 
right? So you mentioned sustainable. It's really not a sustainable model to issue bonds to over and over again to help out poor people to, to, uh, to, to buy homes. So I, I, I would just caution that and refer to the LAO and their analysis to show that that, that, that that can't be the case. So yeah, it sounds like Proposition 1 is, is one piece of the puzzle, one um, tactic, but there's going to be many other tactics we have to take, and this is probably a discussion that's not going to end after November 6. But for now, thank you both, uh, Lane and Rob, for coming in and explaining Prop 1 to us, and thank you for listening, and, uh, and uh, go and vote. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Policy in a Pint conversation was held on September 12, 2018 at Roostallers in downtown Sacramento. Many thanks to our panelists, Lane Himmelman and Rob Wasner, for joining us. Thanks to J.E. Pano, owner of Roostaller Beer, and his staff for hosting this event. Thanks also to Nicole Grant Krieg, one of California Groundbreakers board directors, for volunteering her help. A special thanks goes to Noor Kassour, from Housing California for helping us put this panel together. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.